Friends, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. Mark, chapter 15. We'll begin our, we will begin our reading at verse 15 and read through verse 32 as we consider the sufferings of our Lord. Last week we looked at the unjust trial or trials that Jesus experienced. Tonight we look at the hurt and humiliation he experienced. If you have ever been, and who hasn't, been hurt or humiliated by others, then you can relate to Jesus. And Jesus can relate to you. And so we want to consider this, because Jesus was not just simply killed. He was tortured, he was mocked, he was insulted and taunted and shamed, and then crucified. We want to ponder that this evening from Mark chapter 15, beginning at verse 15. Hear now the word of God. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. They divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, oh, write this on our hearts. Show us Jesus and be merciful to us in his name we pray. Amen. This is a terrible story of suffering. And it is in many ways unique among all the leaders of the world's great religions, whether you think of Abraham, Moses, and David, 
or Muhammad, Confucius, Buddha. Jesus alone died young and violently. And it really happened. Mark, in telling you this story, throws in some strange details uh, that are otherwise entirely superfluous, but they aid in helping anyone who would have heard. It aids us in knowing that this really happened. He roots it in history. When he tells you, for instance, in verse 21, that they had to have Simon help carry the cross. And oh, by the way, Simon's sons, Rufus and Alexander, were there. It's rooting that. And those who understand and and study these things in literature will tell you that this otherwise entirely superfluous information, this little detail about the names of some boys is a way of saying, you know, there were eyewitnesses to this account. And if you don't believe me, well, there's Rufus and Alexander, and you can just ask them. Friends, this really happened, this terrible story of suffering and hurt. And I want you to consider how it was that Jesus was hurt and why it was that he was hurt. And finally, what difference does that make as we follow him? In the first place, how was it that Jesus was hurt? And I want to highlight three things, his pain, the insults, And the humiliation. Notice beginning at verse 15 that he endured physical torture that was absolutely brutal. At the end of the trial before Pilate, Pilate has him flogged. And what we know about Roman flogging is that they would strip the victim, tie the hands together into a post over the head with the back bent in such a way that it was fully exposed. And two men would take... um, these uh, whips with multiple pieces of leather, with uh, rock or other sharp shards, even pieces of bone tied to the ends, and they would take turns pounding on the backside of the victim. And while the Jews mercifully flogged only to 40 stripes, the Romans had no such limitations. Flesh, Flesh and muscle would have been torn, The ribs might have been exposed. Even the internal organs might have been exposed. The victim of a Roman flogging rarely survived. It was absolutely brutal. And then after that, think of it. They hand him over to the military who, in the midst of mocking him, they they put on him a, a cloak. And now what we know is that they had him for likely hours before he actually gets to the cross. And... Undoubtedly time for his blood to begin to clot. And then they strip that cloak off of him. Can you imagine how painful the nerve endings of his back would have been? Absolutely horrendous. And then they crucify him. From which we get the word, from from crucifixion, we get the word excruciating. It was considered the most painful form of execution known in the ancient world. One man described it like this, that the way that you actually die in crucifixion, having been nailed to a post, is that you die through strangulation and suffocation. You, through uh, weakness and exhaustion, begin to sink down and find it impossible to gather your breath unless you push up on the foot that has a nail running through it in order to lift the diaphragm and to breathe freely. And so you normally expired of suffocation. Absolutely a horrendous way to die. 
And what I want you to see about all this pain is that Jesus willingly embraced it. Absolutely willing. In verse 23, it says that Jesus was offered some drugged wine. Wine mixed with myrrh. Wine that would have been given to numb the pain. But he refused it. Why? Because he wanted to drink deeply of this pain out of his love for you. Because he wanted in his right mind, consciously, to drink fully the cup of God's wrath. He chose the maximal experience of pain, in other words. He didn't want his faculties impaired when he suffered for you. He wanted to be clear-minded so that he was able to think, so that he was able to pray, so that he was able to, in his own right mind, trust God through the entire experience, to be able to offer those words at the very end, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And so he embraced the maximum amount of pain out of his love for you. But he was also insulted horribly. And I want you to see that in, in verses 16 through 20, first by the military, a battalion would have been about a tenth of a legion. Anywhere from two to six hundred hardened soldiers accustomed to death and to killing people. Uh, He's placed into their hands for their entertainment. And you can see how entertaining this was for them. Oh, kings wear robes, do they? Let's put on Jesus the purple robe of authority. Doesn't he look really kingly? You can hear them saying. And then kings wear crowns. Let's get him a crown. And they put on his head a crown of thorns and they press it into his skull. Now, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of, of... getting nicked even just in the head but the flow of blood is amazing i worked in junior high youth ministry back in jackson mississippi and we would take kids on mission projects into neighborhoods where they were demolishing homes so that habitat could build a new one we didn't let the junior highs build the new one but we let them tear down the old one so you give these 12 13 14 year old kids hammers Uh, sledgehammers, crowbars. I mean, it's a youth minister's worst nightmare. And it happened. This kid comes fleeing up to us, just absolutely drenched in blood on his face. And, you know, panicked. We're we're thinking, did he he get a sledgehammer to the head or what happened here? But, but, but But he's not feeling a lot of pain. We get him wiped off. And what we discovered was this, the tiniest little nick. He had been working when a friend had just tapped the button on his baseball cap and it created just the tiniest little nick at the very top of his head and it gushed forth blood. Now you understand Jesus would have been covered in blood, unrecognizable to people. And then they receive him with acclamation. Oh, kings uh, receive the pledge of allegiance from their people, don't they? Well, they kneel before this king. Hail, king of the Jews, they say. And kings are kissed, kissed on the hand by their people, and they don't kiss him. They, they stand up and they spit in his face. You can almost imagine a row of 10 soldiers in columns 20, 40, 60 feet deep coming forth column by column to compass this king 
and spit in his face. This is how they mocked him. But it's not just them, friends. Pilate himself, in verse 26, has a sign, a statement of his crime placed over his head, King of the Jews. Now, Pilate means to mock the Jews. We're in authority around here, Pilate is saying. The Roman government has you under its thumb. This is what we do to your king, but it would have been mocking Jesus too. You're a king, are you? Well, look what we can do to you. And more than that, in verse 32, the other criminals hung on his left and his right reviled him, it says. Now, you know, Luke will tell you something happens at the end to change one man's mind, but they began in concert reviling Jesus. And in verse 29 through 32, the bystanders and the religious leaders mock him. Oh, You who can destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well, why don't you do that and save yourself, they say. And the religious leaders who know that that's not really what Jesus had said, they know that's not true. They don't take that same language, but they do say, well, he saved others, but he can't save himself. If he's the Christ, why doesn't he do that? They mock him to his face. And what are they mocking him for, friends? They're not mocking him for his wise teaching They're not mocking him for the healing he gave to people. They're not mocking him for being a friend to sinners. Oh no, they're mocking him for his incredible claim to be God, to be the Messiah, the anointed one, the long promised redeemer, the savior. They're mocking him for being, as he says, not the temple made with hands, but the temple, the true temple where people meet with God. And God meets with people in himself. This is what they mock him for. And this is what Jesus is hated for. As as we read in the book of Acts, there is no other name given among them by which we must be saved. There is no other Savior. And we don't like that. We don't like that because it forces us to either embrace it Or reject it. You cannot remain neutral here. Either cast derision on him with those who mock. Or become his disciple and follow him. Now they're being ironic in their insults. They're saying, well, you're a king. You're the savior. Scornfully, they say, you know, prove your lofty claim. And come down from the cross. They're saying, basically, you know, Jesus, really, it's weakness that keeps you there. But you understand that it's strength that keeps him there. The strength of his love for sinners. It was exactly because Jesus is strong and remained on the cross that he is our savior. The ironic here is ironic. They're mocking. The the ironic thing is they're saying God can't be saving the world through you. And the irony is that God is saving the world through him. Through the weakness and death of King Jesus. And so you and I cannot and must not ignore him. But then he's humiliated as well. You note that he's been stripped naked. Then he's been reclothed. And then upon the cross to be crucified, he'll be stripped naked and hung up publicly for all to see. The cross 
was not only the most painful, brutal form of execution known to the ancient world, but it was also the most humiliating form of execution. And for the Jew especially, to be hung naked, to be uncovered publicly, was regarded by them to be the most shameful thing. Going all the way back to that time in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve had been naked and unashamed. Until sin entered the world. And then all they wanted to do was hide from each other and hide from God. The Jews have always felt that this was a humiliation. And here Jesus is hung upon this cross naked. And as one commentator put it, unable to restrain the excretion of his waist as he hangs before them. Now we know they stripped him naked in in fulfillment of prophecy. I mean, they had their own purposes to divide his clothing, make some money. But they fulfill Psalm 22, verses 16 through 18, which says, A company of evildoers encircles me. They pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. That is wonderfully fulfilled by God the Father's design in the life of our Lord Jesus. Oh friends, nothing here is happening out of control. God isn't off his throne. The shame and the pain are part of God's plan for Jesus. He was made to be hung out publicly like this. Why? Hebrews 12 says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Why did he do it? Why? He despised the shame of the cross, enduring the cross. Why? To bring many sons and daughters to glory. He did it for you. He was exposed to the shame of Adam and Eve. Before sin had entered the world, they were naked and unashamed. With sin came the desire to hide, and now Jesus is here, unable in any way, but laid bare. And he despised its shame, and he bore its shame, so much so that the Bible says about you who feel shame, that he has taken it away. And that he is not ashamed to be called your elder brother. He is not ashamed to own you as his own. He is not ashamed of you. But he makes you welcomed before the Father that you might never need to hide. Now why was he hurt if this was how he was hurt? Why? Why, friends, was he hurt like this? And I want you to consider it. The answer to the why is actually in the where. Where was he hurt? That will tell you the why. I want you to think of this. It's called Golgotha, the place of the skull. His execution here is uh, in the Latin, Calvary, and in the Greek, Golgotha. According to law and custom, crucifixions took place outside of the city. But, but it would have occurred right on the city, still on the mountain, near the wall. It's, the location is, in fact, inside the present city of Jerusalem. 
The location itself is packed with redemptive historical significance. I mean, if you go back in ancient history to the story of Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, you remember that God had told Abraham, take your son, your one and only, your beloved son, and take him to the land of Moriah and there sacrifice him to me. And you know that that father and son went up on the mountain. And just as Abraham was going to strike, the Lord intervened. An angel stopped him. And Abraham looked in a thicket and saw there trapped a ram, which he substituted with his son. And he called that place, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. The Lord provided a substitute in death for his son. Now listen, that's Mount Moriah. Later, King David, when he takes a census of God's people, he counts the fighting men and the horses, and in pride against the Lord, he does what he should not have done. The avenging angel of the Lord comes and exercises punishment on the whole nation, and 70,000 die under the hand of the angel. But God spares David. And David says, let your hand be against me. And the Lord says, build an altar. And so David goes out and he purchases from Ornan the Jebusite. He purchases a field that, the, that Ornan wanted to give to him. And David says, well, I will not offer a sacrifice that costs me nothing. And on the threshing floor in that field, David builds an altar to the Lord. And he offers a burnt offering to the Lord. And a burnt offering is a substitute in death. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, we're told by the chronicler that Solomon builds the temple on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite on Mount Moriah. So here it is in, in that temple. Thousands upon thousands, hundreds of thousands of sacrifices are offered to God. And there on that mountain, Jerusalem, on Mount Moriah, the same place where the angel of death had withheld his hand from Jerusalem, the same place where Abraham had received a substitute for his son Isaac, it is there that Jesus is hung to die. Why? As a substitute for you. Every Christian can say, he loved me and he gave himself for me. You can say, the Father loved me and gave His Son for my soul. The love of God sent the Son of God to bear the wrath of God for the people of God. That you might be saved. That is His reason for being on that cross. Now, how does this help? What difference does this make? Just a few things Briefly, I want you to consider in the first place the offense of pain. Have you ever been, and surely you have, been the butt of somebody's joke, picked on, looked down on, mocked for what you are, mistreated, abused, humiliated publicly? It isn't right. It isn't right when it's happened to you. It wasn't right when it happened to Jesus that evil men should do such a thing to Jesus, the innocent one. 
It isn't right when people made in the image of God, people designed by God to represent God on the earth, that, that is your glory. That is your dignity. It isn't right when these people are, are degraded by others. It is never right. But if you have tasted that, you have been right where Jesus is. Jesus has been right where you are. You have a Savior who can sympathize with you. Whatever the pain. And the Bible says about Jesus that he is not there just for you and in your place, but he is there for your example. That when he was reviled, Peter says, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to one who judges justly. Friends, I want to say to you, if you are in a circumstance where you are being degraded, it is appropriate for you to seek refuge and flee. But you need to understand that under God's sovereignty, you have tasted what Jesus has tasted. And Jesus did not revile in return interpersonally in his relationship. He says to you, Seek safety, of of course, if you can. But do not take justice into your own hand. Wait for me. This is what Jesus says. This is what the Apostle Paul teaches us. that, that, That Jesus knew he was coming back, that he was going to set all things right. And you and I in our own relationships are not to take personal vengeance against those who have hurt us. But we are to let... Vengeance be where it belongs and where it is, in the Lord's hand. And the Lord is sovereign, and we are to rest in Him. The second thing I want you to think about, though, is not the offense of other sins against us, but the offense of our own sin. Look, we don't think sin is a big deal. I know the man standing in front of you doesn't think sin is that big a deal. He certainly doesn't think it's that big a deal when he's doing it. Very few of us think much about how awful sin is, that God hates sin. But would you look at what God did to his son on account of sin? Had there been any other way for God to remain just and good and accept you, the unjust, in his presence, he would have taken it any other way but the but the sufferings of his own son. But there was no other way. So we ought to take a good, long look at how badly our sins offend him. And we need to learn, in a way that we never have, to hate our own sin in proportion to the severity of the punishment which Jesus endured for it. But that is not where this story ends, friends. And I, I care, but I don't care in a sense how badly you've offended him. I know that I have, I'm sure that I have offended him more than you. But what you have got to see is this, that the offense of sin can be forgiven. You know, those two criminals who reviled him, who mocked him. You know the end of the story. What happened? Luke tells you that one of them, having seen Jesus on that cross for hours, 
at the very end, he realizes he is the king. And he turns to Jesus and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He says to Jesus, basically, Jesus, I know that you're the true king. I know that you're going to live beyond the grave. I know that you're coming into your inheritance. Oh, won't you have mercy on me? And Jesus says to him, today, you will be with me in paradise. Because there is mercy on this cross for those who revile Jesus. Let it melt your heart, friends. The king's forgiveness is for all who look to him. Let's do so. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we bless you for your gift. Oh, Jesus, we exalt you and thank you. We pray that you would have mercy on us. Oh, forgive us our rebellions and soften our hearts. And teach us to walk with you. In your name we pray. Amen.